0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Contractors trying to develop artificial intelligence applications for the government face a challenge, namely a good data set for training the algorithms. Now, a big new federally oriented data set is coming from an unlikely source. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got the details from Bloomberg government reporter Josh Axelrod.
2: Well, first of all, where is this coming from? Let's start. Let's start there.
1: So. There's an influential group at Stanford that has created a, a new data set that they call Pile of Law. It's especially oriented towards legal and governmental contexts. Let me back up, though, and tell you about foundation models, which they're trying to um, make better. Foundation model is basically if you take like a row of Encyclopedia Britannica's and you try to uh, ingest it all into a, a machine and then use that machine to make decisions, learn something from the information you provided it, a lot of foundation models, which is a term that comes from the Stanford group and is now widely used across the industry, they ingest information from the public internet. So, the internet, uh, you know, I'm as much a fan of the internet as the next guy, but there's a lot of crap on there. And foundation models have historically been trained using uh, social media, Wikipedia, Reddit. So, for Yikes. example, yeah, right. if, if you're trying to teach a model how humans speak, uh, Facebook is littered with hate speech. And so, that could encode And biases. bad grammar. Bad grammar as well, which you, you can't have a, a model spitting out. So, these researchers attempted to use a different type of data. They turned to case books, legal code, regulatory documents, again, things that are more suited to these legal and governmental contexts to do the work of natural language processing uh, more effectively, which is really in use across the whole of government right now.
2: Interesting. So, in some ways, they are taking the approach that IBM did a number of years ago with a project they called Watson, where they would take all of the vetted material or peer-reviewed material from a given domain and put that into a database. They had trouble selling it. I'm not sure how well it worked. It won Jeopardy!, but... That's kind of what
1: it sounds like here. That's exactly it. What, what they've done is assemble this corpus of data. Uh, it's actually 250-plus gigabytes, and it's all open source. So, programmers can come and look at that data, uh, tinker with it, use it to build their own models. And again, it's going to be better suited towards some of these regulatory contacts. There's really five key areas where the government's using um, AI and natural language processing, which this could really augment. And those areas are? Yeah, that would be enforcement, adjudication, regulatory research, public services, and internal management. Adjudication's a really interesting one. Uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been on the front lines of that. I spoke with their director of emerging technologies, Jerry Ma, and again, he said that he sees the role of AI to augment the human expertise at that agency. So, they use a, an algorithm to address what he calls the mail routing problem. Just Get applications in the hands of the right examiners, but lessen that burden on the human employees there. They also have this this massive library of digital art. It's only growing bigger every day. Sure, he was being a little cheeky, but he told me that um, if they don't bring in an AI solution, that every working age adult would need to be patent examiners by the year 2050 just to address that ever-growing library.
2: Yes, I've heard Jerry Moss say that very thing, but the exponential growth in some of the sources that they need for prior art means they've got to have an automated type of intelligent solution mm-hmm. because there's just so much prior art out there in the world. Got it. All right, so this foundational piece of this this foundational model, the pile of law, which I can tell what everyone's going to be calling it pretty soon, much as we love law and lawyers, (laughs) but
1: this is available to any agency that wants to use it from Stanford? Sure, absolutely. It's open source, um, so people can can get in there and and use it. People will typically take a, a foundation model and then use that corpus of data that's already been cataloged and something that's called deduped and cleaned and sorted, which is a really labor-intensive process, and then they can use that to do some sort of natural language processing application. Something as simple as building a chatbot that can interact with the public, um, or uh, as the U.S. Patent Office is doing, use it to adjudicate claims more effectively.
2: We are speaking with Bloomberg government reporter Josh Axelrod, and as clean as a whistle as it might be, you know the government is going to have questions about anything it dares to ingest, because, and rightly so, because they want to make sure the algorithms that are deployed are unbiased and give results that, you know, in theory, if a human had the time, would come up with with human knowledge. So is there a way for the government to vet this database and make sure that it really is... A better source for training these five
1: domain-related algorithms. Well, again, this is an open-source dataset, so it's not like the government would would kind of purely just map this into one of their applications. It's a resource, and so the intention is to um, enhance the data that's being used to create models. Anyone in the AI space will tell you an AI model is only as good as its data is. That's something that Jerry Ma told me himself. Um, So, people are aware that with bad data, you get biased and discriminatory results, sometimes just purely inadequate results, and you're not going to churn out the results that you're looking for. And so, better data is key in this really, really nascent and promising market um, to getting the results that you're looking to get.
2: And in looking at this foundational model and the business behind it, Stanford University, Did you discover whether it is possible to use a subset of it? Because you may not need the whole 250 gigabytes. And perhaps in a given application, you don't want all 250 gigabytes, but you might need the 50 that are the most relevant.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Again, it's this big corpus of data. You can pull from it, whatever you see fit. Um, it, It was built with special filters for privacy and toxicity, Again, things that maybe social media companies are, are not going to prioritize as much, not something that you're going to find in some of these foundation models um, that are scraping from the public internet, really just trying to ingest all the public content that's out there. And I'll, I'll give you an example of where this can be problematic. Uh, there's a big AI contractor, Clearview AI. They've gotten into some hot water lately, um, but they're used with, with law enforcement, uh, with DHS. I, I demoed their product and, and they took a picture of my face. They ran it through their platform. It's really accurate. It's like 99.9% accurate. They pull up, you know, 12 photos of my face. These are photos I, I didn't even know existed on the internet. I, I never gave my consent to them being used. And so there's this hotbed of privacy issues that emerges. Um, this technology is both ubiquitous and it's nascent. And so we're trying to work out some of those issues with privacy, with bias, with, you know, um, insufficiency of these models
2: interesting yeah i don't dare google myself because uh, <laughs> i know what's out there i don't want to know what i don't know right so <laughs> it's just better to let a sleeping dog lie all right so then uh, are there developments that you're aware of in other domains for foundation models say bioscience or any of the other strategic issues the government is looking at public health for example
1: Absolutely. You can use foundation models to to do a whole range of things. So, the government, you know, I told you about patent adjudication. That's not the sexiest issue, but you can use AI to forecast hurricanes. You can use AI to help sort through dr- drone surveillance. Um, again, this is something that's being used. I had one source say, to his knowledge, he's not aware of any agency that's not using AI in some capacity, even if it's as simple as transcribing meetings. So, Um, This is something that is ubiquitous across government agencies and is only going to continue to grow.
2: And by the way, you've done some research into what the AI market looks like in the federal government. What does it look like?
1: Right. So, uh, according to data from our our Bloomberg government analyst-defined market for AI and machine learning, fiscal 2022 saw $1.4 billion in reported spending towards AI. That market first passed the billion-dollar threshold in fiscal 2019, um, and it peaked in fiscal 2020 at $1.9 billion. Again, we don't have all the the figures in for this fiscal year, so that number is going to continue to grow. Just to put that in perspective, that's a a 225% surge from fiscal 2017 to 2021 much more explosive than another emergent market cloud services. Josh Axelrod is a reporter with Bloomberg Government speaking there with Federal News Network's
2: Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along
1: the way.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha's is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director Sasha welcome
0: Jane thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure
3: can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you and then and, and how did what does that look like
0: sure absolutely So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service so it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that?
0: Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say, there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through.
3: Yeah. We, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years?
0: Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there it was part of his day jobs. So and He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
3: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
0: Well, I wish I wish it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas. As leaders, we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense.
3: Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially my younger self, um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting, and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schellendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
3: Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is